I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 27. As we continue to make our way through this wonderful message of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning His sovereignty, we come to that text that describes the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow as I read, beginning in verse 27 of Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there, And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him, were casting the same insult at him. Our hearts grow heavy when we contemplate the crucifixion of our precious Savior. To see the Prince of Glory so tortured for our sakes is a scene that begs language. His suffering tends to jar our senses helping us to somehow understand a bit better the offensiveness of sin to a holy God. But man knows very little of sin and the holiness of God, especially in these Laodicean days of apostasy. May I remind you that holiness is the all-encompassing attribute of God. Holiness portrays His consummate perfection and His eternal glory, and it stands alone as the defining characteristic of his person. In fact, holiness is the summation of all of his attributes. 
And when we look at sin, we must remember that sin is the mortal enemy of holiness. Like the effects of radiation upon the body, our nature is contaminated with the lethal toxin of sin. And everyone has it. Everyone is born into it. In fact, as we study the scriptures, we see that all that we are and all that we do is fundamentally offensive to the character of our perfectly holy God. Therefore, because of sin, we all stand guilty before God. And no mere mortal could possibly pay the penalty of death. For we are all guilty. So God had to give us a substitute. A substitute had to be required to satisfy the offended holiness of God. And because of God's holy justice, His anger was kindled against sin and sinners because His holy law was violated. And of course, sin cannot go unpunished because God is holy and His wrath had to be appeased in some way. And so because of His infinite love for sinners... God in His grace provided that substitute, which of course was His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As 1 John 2 and verses 1 and 2 says that Jesus Christ, the righteous, was the propitiation or the appeasement for our sins. So God had to provide the perfect substitute, one who could pay that penalty, one who was completely a man to die for men, but also one who was also completely God that could be the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear friends, the very essence of the Gospel is that God has provided a way for sinful man to come into the presence of a holy God. In fact, in Romans 10 and verse 9, we are told that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, that we will be saved. Saved from what? Well, from the eternal penalty of our sins. So, today we marvel as we look at this text at not only the depths of man's depravity in contrast to the righteousness and the love of God. But we also look at the overwhelming blessing that is ours because of what Christ did on the cross. This morning I wish to draw your attention to three central truths that we see in this text. We are going to look at the depth of human pravity, number one. We're secondly going to observe the irony of human rejection. And then thirdly, we will examine the power of saving grace. If we had time, we could go to John chapter 19, the first 16 verses. And there we would read John's account of what happened. And in John's gospel, we read that the soldiers, as Matthew said, stripped the Lord Jesus. Of course, he had already been beaten and humiliated. And they took a scarlet robe and put on him. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. 
They put a reed into his right hand, mocking him as if it were some kind of a scepter, a royal scepter. They mocked him as king. We read that they beat him. They gave blows literally to his face and to his head and that they spat on him. And in John's gospel, we read that Pilate knew again that he was an innocent man and yet he was afraid of the Jews. He was afraid of what Caesar might do if there was another riot there in Jerusalem. So finally, Pilate being frustrated, paraded Jesus back onto the porch of the praetorium before the howling mob and said to them, Behold your king. And with a disingenuous heart, they said, We have no king but Caesar. And then John's Gospel says that he delivered him to them to be crucified. And this is where Matthew's Gospel picks it up at the same point. And at this stage we begin to see my first point that I want to give to you, and that is the, the depth of human depravity. Because it's as though we have seen the gradual crescendo of man's wickedness, and now it reaches this ultimate climax. In verse 27 through 31, we read how that they, again, they stripped him, they put the crown of thorns on his head, they gave him the reed, they beat him, they mocked him as king of the Jews, they spat upon him, and so on. Then they took him away to crucify him. Dear friends, think with me. What kind of fiendish monster would perpetrate such violence upon another human being? It's unimaginable to me. Nothing in the animal kingdom takes delight in torture. No animal enjoys cruelty towards another living creature. There is no animal that literally studies ways to inflict maximum pain, then finds sport in doing so. But I would also submit to you that there is no animal that has a sin nature. There is nothing that can be more wicked than sinful man. Nothing that can be so evil, so wretched, so vile, that it would actually take pleasure in torture and find satisfaction in inflicting the most excruciating pain possible. But dear friends, such is the hideous consequence of sin. I can think of no greater proof of the utter depravity of man than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There has never been a greater crime. Never in the history of the world has there been a more benevolent and compassionate person? There has never been another person who lived a perfectly selfless life. No other person in history has been scrutinized by so many. And no other person in history has been more innocent of any wrongdoing, yet so victimized by injustice. So you must get the scene in your mind Jesus now is in a procession marching to Golgotha, the place of the skull. By the way, this was a reference to a specific location that resembled the shape of a skull. I've been there. Some of you have as well. It's outside the northern walls of Jerusalem. It's called today Gordon's Calvary. 
by the way, Calvaria comes from the Latin term for, or is the Latin term for, for skull or for cranium. We get our word Calvary from that. And you must remember that Jesus was a magnificent specimen of humanity, of unfallen humanness. He possessed enormous strength and stamina, unlike anything that we have ever witnessed this side of the fall. But now Jesus has been deprived of sleep. He has done battle with Satan in the garden. He has sweat great drops of blood. He even admitted that he was sorrowful even unto death. So now the emotional and physical and spiritual battles that he has been enduring on our behalf are gradually beginning to take their toll. Now you add to this that he has been blindfolded and beaten even upon the face on several occasions. He has been scourged which as we have already learned in days gone by, that a scourging would produce deep lacerations across the back, many times exposing internal organs. He has therefore experienced massive amounts of blood that has been lost. Most of the time, this type of a scourging would kill men. And now the crown of thorns that has been placed upon his head has been driven into his skull by the scepter that they had given him and now taken away from him. He has been beaten, John says, even across the face. And so by now he is barely recognizable as a human being. And of course now he is asked to bear a cross weighing some 200 pounds upon his shoulders. And even the Lord Jesus in his unfallen humanness struggles under that weight. And friends, the worst is yet to come. And the worst that he feared was not the crucifixion itself, but rather the separation from his Father when he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. So the weight is too much for him to bear. And in verse 32, we read that they found a man of Cyrene named Simon whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And evidently, as Jesus followed the wooden instrument of torture, it's fascinating to read that as he slowly made his way through the bloodthirsty crowds, he gave one final public warning. I want to remind you of that here in Luke 23, beginning in verse 27. There we read, there were following him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to hills, to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? Now here Jesus was giving a reference to the coming judgment upon Israel. A reference here to the green versus the dry tree was a familiar proverb in that day. 
He's basically saying that if an excellent tree producing an abundance of fruit is not spared from the axe, how much more certain will be the fate of a dry tree that is withered and diseased that deserves to be cut down? And of course, the green tree represented the innocent Lord Jesus that bore the fruits of righteousness And he was the one that did not deserve to die. He deserved to live, yet he was not spared. And of course, the dry tree represented the spiritually dead and barren tree of Israel that deserved to be destroyed. So here is a prediction of the coming slaughter of Israel. And some 40 years later, the Romans came in and butchered them. The very... Romans that they had now sought to do their bidding to kill the Lord Jesus. Now, since Matthew's emphasis in his gospel is not necessarily on the physical torture of the crucifixion, but rather upon the unspeakable wickedness of sinners, I'm only going to briefly remind you of the hideously evil form of execution as we think about crucifixion. And I want to do so by reading a couple of quotes. First, one theologian and doctor tells us, and I quote, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramp, Thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds. All intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened when a victim took several days to die. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood, and while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death the unknown enemy, at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. One thing is clear, he goes on to say, the first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated him. And it is important that we understand this, for it helps us realize the agony of Christ's death. End quote. Another man, Dr. Truman Davis, gives us an additional description of what happened to the Lord Jesus. He says, quote, at this point, another phenomenon occurs as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. 
With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. He goes on to say that hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to to gasp in small gulps of air. And so goes a crucifixion. Friends, the inexpressible misery of crucifixion many times would continue on for several days. And then often, even after death, The corpse would be allowed to remain upon the cross, to putrefy and to rot in the sun, and then to slowly be devoured by vultures, allowing passerbys to look upon this particular person as an object of ultimate derision and scorn. I I cannot fathom a more disgraceful, a more ignominious, a, a more torturous death Dear friends, this is beyond barbaric. Such inhumane, cruel, sadistic savagery exceeds the limits of human imagination. And it can only be described as demonic. Only Satan and his minions could conceive of such monstrous brutality. And only the depravity of man could collaborate with such evil. So here we see the ultimate expression of human depravity. But secondly, as we look at this text, we see the irony of human rejection. Now, consistent with the heretics and non-believers all down through history, even into our day, Israel's religious leaders mocked the Lord Jesus' claims to deity and to kingship. They had proudly convinced themselves that Jesus was just a satanic imposter. They couldn't deny his miracles. They saw them firsthand, but they attributed them, of course, to Satan. And yet all the while, the irony of it is that they were the ones that were the satanic imposters. And Jesus was precisely who he claimed to be. And, of course, the pagan Romans and the self-righteous Jewish multitudes all embraced the very damning lies that the Jewish leaders were perpetrating upon them. And frankly, they are like all who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul tells us in Romans 1. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. 
I think that perhaps the greatest mark of human depravity is man's refusal to bow before his maker and submit to the sovereign rule of the king of glory. Mankind tends to prefer to live for self. Yes, there may be a God up there, but I've got my own agenda. I will live unto myself. Thank you. And when people do tend to think of God, it is usually a fleeting thought, a distant thought, even an occasional thought. And if they think too much about God and His glory and His sovereignty and His holiness, it causes them to shudder with a sense of resentment. And we see this very thing manifested in this text. In verse 28, you'll notice that they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Once again, a blasphemous act of ridicule, making sport of his claim to be king. But again, folks, here's the irony. The one they treated with such contempt has promised to return as the king of glory. And according to Revelation 19 and verse 12, he will return as the righteous judge who wages war. And in verse 13, we even read that he's going to be wearing a robe, a different one than they put upon him. One that is clothed, he will be one that is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. We also see the irony here in verse 29. Here they make sport of his royalty by placing a crown of thorns upon his head. And they place a reed in his right hand, pretending to be a royal scepter of authority, making him a laughingstock, laughingstock of the one who alone reigns as the absolute and unassailable sovereign king, the almighty God who reigns upon all that he has created. And then it says that they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit upon him. And then they take the reed. They begin to hit him upon the head and about the face. And dear friends, as those thorns were driven into his sacred skull, and as the blood poured down into his swollen eyes, his commitment to do his father's will remained undaunted. And yet I know because of the word of God that someday Jesus is going to return. And those who are alive at that time, especially his covenant people, will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. And they will confess him as Savior and Lord. Someday also every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. What was once done in mockery will someday be done in sheer terror. And dear friends, there is a day that is coming when this salutation of mockery, Hail, King of the Jews, will no longer be said with a tone of derision. It will no longer be said to one whom they consider an imposter. Some delusional maniac, some deranged religious nut, but rather a day is coming when they will see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And the word of God tells us that a day is coming when men will hear a very different name and see a very different head 
and a very different eyes than what we see here in this text. John tells us in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, that he saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. He goes on to say that his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And friends, someday, Man will experience a very different mouth and a very different attitude from the one that we see depicted in this text. And they will tremble at what he holds in his right hand. And it won't be a reed given to him in mockery. Because again, in verses 15 and 16 of Revelation 19, we read that from his mouth will come a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Someday, dear friends, all of the scorn and all of the spitting will be over. When the king returns, the word of God tells us that men's hearts will fail them for fear. They will beg for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them and to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But then it will be too late to repent. And there will be no thought of ridicule on that day. On that day there will be no more coarse jesting, no more cruel calumny. And all of the mocking and all of the scoffing will be eclipsed by the sheer terror of facing the King of Glory. As their judge. At his crucifixion, they also mocked him because of his claim to be the Son of God. In verses 39 through 44 it says those were those and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, "You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." In the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. As if to say, see, this proves he was a satanic imposter. They went on to say, He is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. And we shall believe in him. A quote, by the way, from Psalm 22.8. He trusts in God, let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Now, folks, we must pause for a moment. I think there is a great lesson to be learned here in this text. Satan many times would have us believe that God has abandoned us in the midst of our greatest trial. I think most of you have been there. I certainly have. As if to say, come down from the cross now. See, you trust in God. Where is he? He's not delivering you from your great adversity, from some crucible that you're now experiencing. He's not delivering you. Where is the one that you claim takes great pleasure in you? Where is your heavenly father? Why do you continue to suffer with whatever the trial may be? 
He has forsaken you. But folks, at times like these, we must remember our blessed Savior who hung upon that tree. You see, His Father had not forsaken Him, had not forgotten Him. His deliverance was certain and it was sure. But it was only on His timetable. You see, the purposes of God's glory have a divine chronology and require a predetermined season that is known only to an omniscient God. And we must relax in that. Dear Christian, we must remember that God is in control and He will deliver us at the proper time, even as He did the Lord Jesus. And we must therefore never let the cruel taunts of Satan somehow diminish our confidence in our Heavenly Father's Love and care for us. We must never doubt His tender mercy. We must never doubt His perfect timing. He knows precisely how long to temper the steel of our faith in the fires of adversity. And in His infinite wisdom, He knows what it will take to somehow strengthen us to be able to withstand future trials that He has for us. Trials that will bring Him great glory and bring us great joy. And so we must be patient in the midst of great affliction. He will deliver us the same way He delivered His own Son who accomplished our redemption. And there's also a comforting thought here. Unlike His Son, He will never forsake us. He did there for that moment with the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Why hast thou forsaken me? But Jesus has promised us in John 14:27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. So like Jesus, we must say, not my will, but thine be done. And even like Peter, who himself was later crucified, he warned the Saints that were being persecuted to humble yourselves. He said in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. At the proper time is the key. He is going to exalt you, but at the proper time. And only God knows when that will be. And He says, casting all your anxiety upon Him, Because He cares for you. So as we behold the violence of the cross and as we gaze upon the suffering of our Savior, friends, we must make no no mistake, such cruel blasphemy will not go unpunished. Jesus even later declared in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's the irony of man's rejection. That somehow he has convinced himself that all of Jesus' claims are false, that they are bogus. But in fact, all that Jesus said was true. Someday man's proud rebellion and his vicious attacks on Christ and all those that belong to him will one day seal their fate. Because Jesus is the King of glory. Jesus is the King of the Jews. 
Jesus is the Lord of the church. He is the Son of God, whether man believes it or not. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, when the end comes, that Jesus will deliver up the kingdom to the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And verse 28 goes on to say, And when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, that God may be all in all. Here, of course, is a reference to the ultimate reign of our Lord Jesus Christ that will follow His millennial reign upon the earth. And, of course, in that ultimate reign, this will be the time when the Son of God will once again reign in the fullness of the triune Godhead for all eternity. But God has told us that man is a spiritual corpse. He is unable to respond to divine truth. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. And we see this stark reality being played out in this text. How tragic in verse 34 it says they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. Now, folks, you might think, well, this sounds merciful, but that was not at all the intent. You see, gall was a narcotic. It was it was uh, it was made from myrrh. It could also be translated as, as myrrh, uh, which was, by the way, also used for perfume. But this gall was given primarily to temporarily dull or stupefy the senses of the victim that was being nailed to the tree. And this would prevent the victims from struggling with an almost superhuman violence as the spikes were driven through the nerve roots of the hands and of the feet. And so this was as much for the sake of the soldiers as it was for the victim. Of course, Jesus was unwilling to be anesthetized. He had come to drink to the very dregs the cup that the Father had given him, and so he refused the drink. He was going to drink all of the Father's wrath, and he would not have any of his senses dulled for that. He came to suffer for you and for me, and nothing less would satisfy holy justice. So he refused the drink. And in verse 35, we read that, when they had crucified Him. By the way, that means that when they had raised up the cross and allowed it to drop into the hole. When they had raised Him up and allowed it to drop into the hole, they divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots. And then, it's fascinating, under the illusion that somehow they were in power over the Lord of hosts, it says that they sat down and they began to watch over Him there. They wanted to make sure that he somehow was not taken off the cross or given any aid from his friends. So again, this text reveals the irony of human rejection. Pictures of rejection that continues to this very day. How tragic to think that the very elements of an unbeliever's ridicule and scorn concerning the Lord Jesus Christ will someday be the very truths that will indict them and seal their fate for eternity. By the way, we see the same kinds of damnable lies used to discredit and disregard Jesus this very day. There are many. Let me give you a couple. There are many Christians, and I put that with quotes around it, 
people that are ostensibly Christian, that consider the story of the cross to be a form of cosmic child abuse. Of course, nobody could possibly be a believer, a true Christian, and believe this, but many people claim to be Christians that believe this. They believe that it was cosmic child abuse because here you have a father torturing an innocent son for the sins of others. Of course, as in the first century, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And therefore, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Those who perceive the atoning work of Jesus to be cosmic child abuse certainly fall into this category, those that think that all of this is just foolishness. And I must say that such such defamation and such distortion of truth plays well into the minds of a world that prefers the newly invented smiley face God of neo-evangelicalism. One that just kind of loves everybody and is just out there ready to give you all of the goodies if you just kind of learn how to manipulate Him. And so with a misguided concept of God's love a love that has no link to holiness, people refuse to believe that the wrath of God literally abides on all who have refused to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read that all through the New Testament, especially in John 3.36. And because people are spiritually dead, they have no grasp that as an unbeliever, according to Ephesians 2.3, they are by nature a child of wrath. And because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 5, 6. And so, folks, if you don't see the bad news, you'll never understand the good news. But here's the good news in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Therefore, dear friends, I rejoice from the very depth of my being that Jesus bore God's curse on the cross for me. And therefore, I can rejoice in Galatians 3.13 that reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Another satanic attempt to undermine the credibility of Jesus Christ and render Christianity a hoax is found in the very popular novel and motion picture, The Da Vinci Code. Nothing more than a repackaging, by the way, of ancient Gnosticism. It comes from gnosis, the Greek word gnosis. It means uh, knowledge of the divine, something that only the elite could possibly know. And of course, if you read this garbage, you see that Jesus was not God and that he was married to Mary Magdalene. But of course, his followers wanted to suppress women and therefore somehow suppress what Jesus wanted, which was the worship of the divine feminine. So they ascribed deity to Jesus and basically, Christianity is all one big hoax. It was invented by Constantine. And of course, it was designed to suppress women. 
they would teach us that uh, Israel in the Old Testament worshipped the male god Jehovah and his feminine counterpart, the Shekinah. And Jesus was the original feminist according to this novel, but his movement got hijacked by a bunch of male chauvinists who were in power at that time and dominated the leadership of the church in early Christianity and on and on it goes. Again, Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as it's a lie. And there are myriads of these lies that have been given to us. And sadly, millions of people who do not know the truth are reading these lies. And by the way, as you can tell, they play well into the feminist agenda of our age. And they give non-believers one more reason not to believe in Christ. And with every new day, there seems to be another calumny that is given another defamation of his person and work, uh, another one that's out. Uh, the National Geographic, of course, has given us a great new find. It's the lost gospel of Judas. And you can get into the same type of garbage there. But, of course, this should not surprise us. Satan is the father of lies, and he serves up a whole smorgasbord full of deceptions every day. And each one, by the way, gives yet another answer to the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter had it right and he answered it correctly in Matthew 16, 16. He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And because of this magnificent truth, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, beginning at verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Well, finally this morning, we've seen the depth of human depravity and the irony of human rejection. But let me close on a positive note. We also see the power of saving grace. You must remember, once again, that many times God's saving purposes are concealed in calamity. And we see that obviously here in the event of the cross. And even during the Lord's crucifixion, it's fascinating to see that there were those who came to a saving knowledge of himself. By the way, we know that at least one of the members of the Sanhedrin broke ranks and confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to read later that he wanted Jesus' body, he asked Pilate for the Lord's body. We can also go back to verse 32 here in Matthew 27, and we read of this man, Simon of Cyrene, the one who was pressed into service to bear Jesus' cross. Now, it's interesting if we go to Mark's gospel in Mark 15:21, Simon is described as a passerby coming from the country, and it says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, stick with me for a second. This indicates that Simon's sons were believers that Mark's readers would have known rather well. And we believe that Mark wrote his gospel from Rome. And therefore, it's a high probability that Alexander and Rufus were active in the church at Rome. And that the other believers would have known of him. Moreover, we read in Romans 16:13, Paul said, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Now, of course, Rufus's mother was not Paul's mother. 
But he was expressing his love here and his appreciation for this woman because she had probably served him in some very special way. And here's the connection. Bottom line, Alexander and Rufus were Simon's sons and their mother was his wife and a choice friend of the Apostle Paul. And so there's a very high probability that Simon's encounter with the Lord Jesus led to his salvation. Oh, the power of saving grace. And we also know in Acts 6 and verse 7 that the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And listen to this. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Isn't that something? Many of these same culprits that mocked Jesus later came to a saving knowledge of the one they crucified. And then, of course, here in Matthew 27, verse 44, we read that the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. But we know as we read the other Gospels that even in the midst of all of this chaos and agony, God's grace was at work and somehow the Holy Spirit softened the heart of one of those criminals and he placed his faith in Christ. And according to Luke 23, verse 42 through and following, we, we read about this. And there we, we find that, um, that he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And upon, upon hearing this, the gentle Savior responded to him and said, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is the power of saving grace, dear friends. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. May we all bow before the one who reigns forever and ever as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for revealing to us these amazing truths in Your Word. Thank You for sending Your Son and Lord Jesus. Thank You for being faithful to do the Father's will. And because of all of this, we can be saved. Lord, may there not be one single person within the sound of my voice this day. Not one single person that would reject so great a salvation. But may we all confess that You are Savior and Lord and worship You till the day we die. Till that day when we can be ushered into Your presence and see Your glorious face and enjoy fellowship with You forevermore. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.